0: Live from Southern California, this is the Jim Rome Show. Starting with Frank Reich and the Colts, gambling in overtime, crapping out. And for the record, I love that call. I love what he did. The Steelers last night, looking nothing like the Steelers. Then, sort of looking like the Steelers, and then nothing at all like them again in their loss to the Ravens. Now, they look like a disaster Josh Gordon made his Pats debut, and it looks like he might make a big difference there. And you can retire that lame take about how Tom Brady does not have weapons. He does. In fact, everywhere. Lots of weapons, and he's getting Julian Edelman back today, and not a second too soon. And even though the Patriots are looking up at Miami in the division, you can go ahead and give the AFC East to the Pats right now, even if they are still looking up at Miami. It belongs to them after that ass-kicking they dropped on the allegedly suddenly relevant and competitive Dolphins. Same as they ever were. Overhyped, mediocre, and largely irrelevant. Did anybody really think at 3-0 they were going to go in there and do anything pose any kind of threat to the Patriots? Same as they ever were. How about the Bears throwing up a disco ball for their victory party? Why the hell not? Great D and Mitchell Trubisky lost his mind against the Bucks, throwing for 16 TDs. Look, taking nothing away from the kid, he was lights out, but I'm still going to need to see it or something close to it against somebody other than that sorry-ass D that the Bucs have. But a huge day for Mitchell nonetheless, and the Bears are feeling pretty damn good about themselves, and you know what? They should. The Bucks, not so much. They feel like garbage. They look like garbage. Even their head coach, Dirk Cutter, went with the rare move of suggesting that everybody should be fired, including himself.
1: We should fire every person that was on that field today, starting with me. That was that was horrific.
0: Yeah, I'm never looking to take food off anybody's table, but yes and yes let me hear that one more time. That guy literally just said we should fire everybody on the field, starting with me. We should fire every person that was on that field today, starting with me. That was, that was horrific. I'm not going to lie to you. I've left the studio some days here and thought to myself, we should fire everybody here, starting with Hawk. <coughs> a- anyway, there are so many places to start, a few bullets off the top, but where I really want to start... Is with America's team. America's team. Cowboys? Eh! Packers? Eh! America's team. The Cleveland Freaking Browns. Yes, I said it. They are America's team. They've gone from the worst team in the NFL to the most exciting team in the NFL. Four games into the season, in all four games, had you on the edge of your seat tripping. Hell, the Browns not only matter again, they're exciting as hell. The tie with Pittsburgh, the improbable comeback, an impossible loss to the Saints, the epic win over the Jets that liberated the entire city, and then yesterday, their roadie to Oakland. Another week, another awesome event. The Browns are actually must-see TV. Let me cut to the chase. Yes, it was Oakland's first win of the year. Yes, it was John Gruden's first win as a head coach in a long, long time. And it's easy to get suckered into the story of the Raiders turning the corner now. That now the silver and black are in fact back. That the flame has been relit and it will never go out. That Gruden has it figured out now. Yeah, not really. And you probably don't want to bring that crap around here either. All that did was prevent the worst case scenario for the Raiders and their $10 million a year coach. And no, I don't give a damn how much he makes. You're worth whatever somebody's willing to pay you. I only bring up how much Chunky makes because he made it a point to say how much Khalil Mack wanted to make. Oh, and the fact that every time Khalil Mack steps on the field, he reminds everybody just how badly Gruden got worked in that trade with the Bears, regardless of who they end up picking with the picks that came back. I mean, sure, even if Gruden can work a miracle, which is doubtful, but even if he does and he does draft the next Khalil Mack, it's still not going to matter because he had the actual Khalil Mack. And he's doing for the Bears what he used to do for the Raiders and should still be doing for the Raiders, wrecking shop. But I'm not going to keep going back to that over and over again. Well, actually, I probably will. Anyway, my point, the story was not about the Raiders busting their losing streak. It was about the Browns breaking their winning streak. Oakland 45, Cleveland 42 in overtime. And that's what the scoreboard said, and nobody's a bigger scoreboard guy than me. I've always said, if you're blaming the officials, you're blaming yourself. And the Browns were blaming themselves after that game. But they did get jammed by the referees and jammed hard. You probably saw it, but a quick reset. Cleveland up 42-34. Less than two minutes to go. Third and two from their own 17. Get that first down, and they can start kneeling down and celebrating back-to-back wins. Carlos Hyde takes the handoff. And why don't we just go to the tape and see for ourselves. Here's the snap. Mayfield turns, gives. Hyde blasts it away. He's fighting, fighting out to the 19. And let's see where they spot the ball. Looks like they gave him a pretty good spot from the side. Boy, if he's got the first down and the Browns and Hyde leading the charge, he's given the first down signal. Let's see. He got it. He hasn't given a signal yet, has he?
1: The ruling on the field is a first down. First down. Previous play is under further review. After he's the play, the runner's elbow was down and the ball
0: was short of the 19-yard line. This is not happening! Browns Radio, so to recap, Hyde appeared to get a first down. And on top of that, did not get a good spot, by the way, but appeared to get a first down. The officials bring out the chain gang. They measure for it. It was ruled a first down. That game is over. But then they go to replay, and then it gets overturned fourth down. The Browns punt. The Raiders tie it. They go on to win it overtime. Now, if this had happened a week or two earlier, even, you'd have said, Brown's going to Brown. Brown's going to Brown. But this was not Brown's going to Brown. This was the ref's going to ref. I thought the former league MVP of officiating, Dean Blandino, was going to stroke out right there on the air. I mean, it was so egregious that the Cleveland Police Department tweeted, robbery warrant issued for tonight's Browns game. NFL officials, okay, we can't do that. Just saying, hey-oh! Well, you know it's bad when the city police department is going to wacky, sticky tweets. But they were right. That was a robbery. The Browns should be headed back to the land with a win, a 2-1-1 record, and being in a playoff spot at the quarter pole. Now, that doesn't mean the Browns were off the hook. I'm not putting it all on the refs. The Browns made plenty of mistakes in that game. Baker Mayfield had four turnovers, and he was the first one to own that. I'm quarterback of this team. It's on me. But Baker Mayfield had four turnovers and still had them in a spot to win that game. And they should have won that game. They didn't BGB that game. The refs RGR'd that game. Baker said it himself afterwards. A few. You know, it had to be... uh... A heck of a review to turn that over on the uh, third down and short. So, I don't know. But anytime you put it in somebody else's
2: hands, uh, it's not always going to turn out your way.
0: Is that a guy making his first NFL start or a guy who's been there 10 years? Love Baker Mayfield. Man, I love the way that guy handles himself on and off the field. But he's right. I mean, this guy already gets it, right? The fact that anybody ever dared to compare him to Johnny Football is the biggest joke ever. These guys have nothing in common. Literally nothing in common. And I want to say it right now. The Raiders may have won that game, but they are losing the war. Because right now, I would rather be the Browns than I would the Raiders. And when have you ever said that you would rather be the Browns than anybody else? Much less the Raiders. But I would. And the reason for that, the Browns have a vision, they've got a plan, they've got a defense with talent, and they have an offense that has serious potential. The Raiders, well, the Raiders have two extra first-round picks. Do they have a future? Possibly, maybe, I don't know, but I do know the Browns do. So you better buy that stock, jump on that bandwagon before it gets too full. Because while I don't know if the Raiders have turned the corner, I know the Browns have, even after a loss to Oakland, and even after they were jammed hard by the officials. I mean, this is the NFL, right, where you are exactly what your record says you are. And the Raiders' record says they're one and three, but they should be 0-4. And, and hell yes, I would rather be the Browns than I would the Raiders right now. If you're looking to add a little more excitement to tonight's Monday night matchup between the Chiefs and the Broncos, you want to head right over to My Bookie and get started right now. If you were on My Bookie this weekend, you had a chance to hit it big with Old Dominion. Trust me, they are the best bet this season. They've been in business. For years, they have great reviews online and their mobile site is very easy to navigate. Lay down some cash, win big right now. I would only recommend a service to my listeners that's been good to me. This is why I'm urging you to make your way to my bookie. You win, they pay. And they have in-game live betting, the most rewarding player perks in the business. And for you fantasy guys out there, you can even bet the over-under on how many fantasy points a player will score each game. Join now and MyBookie will match your deposit dollar for dollar. Use the promo code Rome to activate that offer. Visit MyBookie online today. That's M-Y-B-O-O-K-I-E. Do not forget to use the promo code Rome when creating your account to get that bonus. You play, you win, you get paid. We are joined right now by Steve Smith Sr. Steve, great to have you back. Good morning. How are you? How you doing, Mr. Rome? Good to see you. Good to talk to you. Doing great, Mr. Smith. Great to have you back. Always good to talk to you. Where to start, Steve? Let me start with Earl Thomas. He broke his leg in yesterday's game. He appeared yep. to flip off the sideline as he was carted off the field. First, uh, have you- appear,
3: uh, uh, appear would not be the accurate statement. He, he,
0: did. Him, he, he did. He flipped him the bird. <laughs> oh, man, he did. All right, so let me ask you this. I correct myself yep. or you correct me. Have you ever seen a guy do that before? And what's your take on the entire situation in Seattle?
3: So here's everybody you watch and listen to. I just, I just finished uh, doing that fat man workout. So I'm just uh, sitting on the treadmill and uh, just walking and looking at stuff. And it, it's, it's working out well for me. But um, everybody's saying, how can he make that obscene gesture? Why did he do that? See, people are missing things. In the media sometimes, which I, I, I remove myself from being a media guy, and I try to look at it as a player. And the one thing that I notice that think about this, Joe, he flips him off, and everybody's going crazy. But let me ask you, when has the last time you've seen a franchise, high-paid pro Bowl player get injured? They have to put an air cast on his leg. Who stayed on the sideline, though? See, the, the headline said he's flipping off the sideline. When, have a, when has a player been injured and you have not seen the head coach come out on the field and look to see how his player is doing? The Arizona Cardinals patted him on the back. Larry Fitzgerald came off the sideline. Everybody came on the off the sideline except – an important person for the Seattle Seahawks, Pete Carroll. He wasn't flipping off the sideline. He was flipping a bird to Pete Carroll. And hence why Pete Carroll, right after the game is over, in the wind, he says, we're putting him on IR. It's a severe injury. When has broken legs been that severe where you don't even, you have a prognosis of he is immediately no longer available for the remainder of the season? Usually that information comes out Monday morning, you know, Monday afternoon, Sunday night. Hell, the game was already over, and they decided that he – and they didn't even – they're not designating him for an IR return. So that just lets you know the dysfunction, the dysfunction of that organization. And, here, and, and you look at all the departure of people of influence on that team. Uh, Richard Shermer, Richard Sherman, gone. Now – Earl and all Earl Thomas, all his situation is gone. All these guys are leaving. There's a thing going on, and guess what? It's not the players. You know, and that's one of the things that I, I find it funny and interesting that people are missing. It wasn't the sideline. It was to a particular person.
0: Steve Smith, senior, my guest, I want to be very clear about this. I had no issue, no problem with it at all. I mean... I understand why he's upset. This is why he didn't want to come in. This is why he wanted a contract because something like this could in fact happen. You mentioned Le'Veon Bellis, so let me get your thoughts on that. What do you think that he thought as he saw what happened to Earl Thomas? Do you expect to see him in uniform at some point this season or could you see him sitting out the whole year?
3: I just see him coming coming back week eight. And then after that then after that, he goes ahead and uh Gets, you know, they mess around with them. They'll say this, they'll say that. And then he'll what, play week 10, and he'll become a free agent, and he'll recoup the money that he lost from all those other teams because free agency is like a marriage. You only got to convince one person to like you. And and as you've seen with Khalil Mack and other people, you know, teams are, teams make decisions early on. They start to look at their offseason. They start to make decisions who they want going into free agency his Kirk Cousins and the Minnesota Vikings and the uh, New York Jets they offered him more money but the New York I mean the Minnesota Vikings got him. So teams already know who they want going into the off season. So I would I would agree that he will probably go somewhere else because you can see that the Steelers are moving on. That's why they uh, drafted James Conner and they he's a pretty decent running back. He's no Le'Veon Bell, but he's a guy of the future.
0: And all it takes is one big yes. Now, you spent some time with Baker Mayfield for a segment, and you told him that he looked like, quote, a substitute teacher, which I thought was a great line. What do you make of him as a guy, and then how might that translate into him being a leader, an effective leader?
3: He is an effective leader because he is well-traveled. He's experienced in adversity. Some of these guys, like Josh Rosen, he has experienced some adversity, you know. He's up at UCLA. It's nice. You you living out there in California, man. UCLA, they ain't a lot of adversity up there, uh, <laughs> you know. Right now, right. so they got the sun. They may get some rain, but Baker Mayfield has been. He's a walk on. He transferred. He had to sit out. You know, he had to learn. One of the things I was really cool to watch at the combine. He was very accurate. And you can see he's a gunslinger. He knows how to put the ball. The only thing with that team that they need to learn how to do is handle the pressure and finish out games. They're a young team. They're very excited to watch. But at the end of the day, they're just a young team that that really needs some experience.
0: Got a couple more minutes with Steve Smith Sr. Steve, you had a great piece, I thought, for NFL.com in September that broke down five keys to making it in the NFL as a player. And the first one was knowing how to take care of your body. When you first came into the NFL, how much did you know about that?
3: I didn't know anything about it. And I, I had to learn. You know, you, get, you, you go from college, they try to help you out. But the NFL is a little bit different. You have the whole off season. There is no off season as a rookie. Because you're going to training camp. I mean, you're going to combines. You're doing personal workouts. You're visiting teams. You're doing all that stuff. they poking and prodding you. Then you go to the draft. Then after the draft, they have a rookie mini camp. Then after a rookie mini camp, if your school is out early enough, you have uh, OTAs, organized team activities. Then you have a little bit of week off. And then you go to training camp. They have rookie training camp. You do training camp. You go through the season, hit the playoffs. All of a sudden, January is, you're done. Man, as a young man, you, man, you don't know what's going on. Your body's like, hey, we're usually done by now. So that that part is um, tough. And so I had to learn over time. I had to learn what my body needs, how it needs it, what foods work for me, what foods don't. Coming from California to the south, man, you know, my family's from uh, New Orleans and up north uh Northern California. And we, we used to gr- barbecue them. But, man, when I got to North Carolina, it's some barbecue out here. <laughs> I got a little heavy in off season, you know, eating fried chicken and, and 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 some good ribs and stuff like that. So I had to really learn how to um, really manage my body and my time. Um, so that that all was something that was new to me.
0: Steve Smith, my guest. Steve, one more thought. <laughs> That's funny about that. But you also wrote a really powerful piece about your personal battle with depression. I had Brian Dawkins, Steve, on the show recently, and we talked about his decision to share his battles with depression. What was it like for you to talk openly about that and share it?
3: Well, one thing that I, I saw, that people automatically assume that I'm doing an article because, as some people say, my money's funny, and I'm looking to, to prove something. I'm going to tell you right now, my money ain't funny. I'm, I'm good. I wrote the piece because everybody believes, and I started off by talking about Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. Those people are very influential and they, everybody knows them and sees them. Kate Spade, obviously she, she does coach and you see the impact on a financial, uh, wherewithal that she has. But at the end of the day, money cannot make you happy. And. I just struggled with it uh, most of my career and I didn't realize what it was until I got retired and I started seeking help on, oh, man, I, I just don't feel satisfied and I, I couldn't figure out why and started going through and started reliving my days of playing and how I handled adversity and success and i, I always second guessed everything about my career. And uh, one of the coolest text messages I got when I wrote the article was from my actual counselor. And he said, man, we've come a long way from that first meeting at your house. And I had him come to my house because the stigma of counseling and what that looks like and what people would assume. Now when I walk in my counselor's office, I'm not afraid or worried about who sees me because for me, I'm saying, hey, I don't have it all together, and it's okay, and I'm fine with that, and I'm seeking help, and, and and I'm at a place right now. I'm 39 years old. I got a beautiful wife. I got four great kids, and I finally, for the first time, have freedom, and I'm okay with being in my own skin. I don't have to be something or act like, something I'm not. I could be okay. And it's been you know, I'm at peace and it's and it's been cool to to experience.
0: My man, I could not respect or admire that any more than I do. And I really appreciate you sharing that. Remember you can see Steve Thursday on NFL Network's NFL game day kickoff at six PM Eastern, ahead of the Colts Patriots on Fox, NFL Network, and Amazon Prime Video. You can see him every Sunday also. Showtime now. Showtime now, tell me. Inside the NFL. Oh, dude, I will be honest with you. I did not know that. That is awesome. That is a great show, and especially a great show for you to work on. What are you going to do for them?
3: Um, I'm in the inside the NFL. So it's Boom,
0: uh Ray Lewis, the, the
3: demigod himself, and uh, Phil Sim, uh J.B., James Brown, who's an awesome host, and then this this Carmel, light-skinned brother right here. Is on there as well. I'm on there about nine to ten shows, and so uh, I'm I'm having fun, and but I'm learning from these guys, and it's been pretty remarkable to work for NFL Network and just get the opportunity to learn how to be an analyst, not to just talk about wide receivers, but to talk about offense, defensive and line, and all that stuff. And uh, this is my second year, but I'm really enjoying the opportunity that I have, and I, I hope uh, I'm giving viewers an opportunity to laugh, smile. And also uh, think uh, a little bit. Just like while I was telling you about uh, Earl Thomas, he, just don't assume what you see of that man is just you get what you see. But sometimes got to right. understand these athletes are a little bit uh, deeper than some. some. Some have a shallow pool, but some are, some are uh, 20 feet deep.
0: Let's talk Ryder Cup. Here is the best possible news for the 2018 U.S. Ryder Cup team. It's over. Now you're done. Because that absolute, total, straight up, complete, thorough, outright, unequivocal, pure, humiliating, European ass-kicking is now over. And not a moment too soon. Because while Tommy Fleetwood, a.k.a. Golf Jesus, and Ian Poulter, and the rest of the Europeans were raging in the club, And probably still are the Americans were riding back across the pond on a bird that it turns out that they never actually got off of seventeen and a half to ten and a half. If you are not a golf fan and you do not understand match scoring, match play scoring, I will save you the trouble of deciphering that. We got murdered, and the crime scene was being taped off at Lake Golf National before the final three matches yesterday even got to the 15th hole. And that's because Phil Mickelson drove the last nail in our pine box when he rinsed one on 16 and shook hands with his reaper, Frankie Molinari, to concede the clinching Ryder Cup point for the Europeans. Scoreboard. Scoreboard. Do not look up at it, because it is heinous. And if you're looking to point the finger, you better have both hands. And both hands ready. Because this was a complete and collective no-show. Except none worse than Tiger and Phil, who were a combined 0-6 in their sessions, with the cap being responsible for four of those losses. These two dudes were the captain's picks, and they rewarded Jim Furyk's loyalty by getting swept right out of France. Thanks for absolutely nothing, Cat. Thanks for even less, Hefty. The only thing worse and how these two performed are the excuses that Honk Nation already had locked and loaded and is rolling out for their guy, Eldrick. You know, the ones about how he was so tired from all the events that he played in September. How he was emotionally gassed from that win last week. How he was sunk by Patty Reed and BDC in partner play. You see, Honks... Here's why that's all garbage. Here's why none of that flies. Here is your problem, honks. The same guy that you all want to give a pass to is the same dude who was running his mouth and talking junk before the Ryder Cup and every last one of you loved it. And honestly, if I'm being transparent, I liked it. You remember? Going into the event, Woods was saying things like, you want a piece of me? Well, here I am. Because everybody prior to his late run-up did want a piece of him. And especially in Ryder Cup play, where he always no-shows. So Tiger was saying things like that. So don't make excuses for him about how tired he was and about how the pairings didn't work for him. He himself went in and was saying things like, you want some of this? Come and get some. Hey, cat. Fact is... Everybody on the other side wants some of that. Everybody wants a piece of you. Because as great as you've been in tournaments of late, you're just that bad in match play and always have been. And the record reflects that. Always, even in your prime, you never got it done. And speaking of records, the Cat tied a record for most losses in Ryder Cup history yesterday, only to give it right back to hefty who claimed what was rightfully his an hour later. I mean, these two dudes were literally trading all-time marks for Ryder Cup futility. The alleged two best players of their generation are at the very top of Mount Suck, one and two respectively. Literally. This is not some lazy Mount Rushmore segment. This is a Mount Suck segment, and they're on top. Literally. Literally. Not hypothetically, not theoretically. They're the two worst ever. So I never want to see either of these two at this party ever again. Either here or there. And yet the next time they pick up a bat together, you'll have to go into your wallet to see it. I mean, how rich is that? These guys go over there, cost us, and again, they're not the only ones. Nobody played well. But those two especially. But the next time you see these two guys go head-to-head, they want you to pay for it. How much money do you two knuckleheads owe us for having to watch this over the weekend? (laughs) That pay-per-view event was like the worst idea ever. It really was. It was the worst idea ever when it was announced. And it looks so much worse now. you two bros have a little pride and a little dignity and just end it right now. Cancel it right now. And given how horrible it sounded when they announced it, it's even worse now. And I didn't think that was possible. Do the right thing. I mean, I could easily say, if you don't like it, don't pay for it. Oh, believe me, I won't. I won't. But that's not even enough for me. Me not committing my dough for it is not enough. Pull the plug on that thing. Just end it. Meantime. Meantime. They weren't the only Americans with a couple of hands around their own throats. Dustin Johnson, one in four in five sessions to post the worst record by a sitting number one player ever. Jordan Spieth, there were concerns about him coming in and now we know why. He lost yesterday. He is now 0-6 lifetime in singles matches. Patrick Reed, who earned the gloss Captain America two years ago, went 1-2 this time. However, he and his wife managed to burn that place to the ground on the way out. Because after all, that's all we needed, really. That's all the Americans needed to finish out their brutal week. Some good old fashioned golf drama and finger pointing. And the Reed family provided it in spades. Because after Furick split up Spieth and Reed, a combo that worked well at Hazeltine, Reed went 0 2 with Elgato and then took another L in the team game when he told the New York Times, and I quote, The issue's obviously with Jordan not wanting to play with me. I don't have any issue with Jordan. When it comes right down to it, I don't care if I like the person I'm paired with or if the person likes me, as long as it works. And it sets up the team for success. He and I know how to make each other better. We know how to get the job done. End quote. There's something to that now. I don't disagree with what he said. I disagree with where he said it. After he narked out Spieth to the media for not wanting to play with him, he also took a shot at his captain saying, quote, For somebody as successful in the Ryder Cup as I am, I don't think it's smart to sit me twice. End of quote. Kill shot on Spieth, kill shot on Furyk. And I'm not saying Furyk did a great job either. Furyk, honestly, Furyk put up a crap that I didn't think that he would. Him being who he is. You know, blue collar, old school, Pittsburgh tough. I didn't expect him to put up with some of that nonsense that he put up with. But all in all, in the wake of the Americans getting turned inside out all weekend in Paris, you know, what's that whole thing about, isn't Paris for lovers? Isn't Paris for lovers? Apparently, Pat Reed didn't get the memo because he was hating pretty hard, even for Reed. So don't be surprised if he was sitting in his own row all by himself on the flight home or on a separate plane altogether. Not like he'd care. Dude is a lone wolf's lone wolf. And then there's the Twitter handle that matches his wife's name. The Twitter handle, at Justine K. Reed, that was running junk on speeth over the weekend. When asked by a reporter, this is rich now, when asked by a reporter if that Twitter account belonged to her, Justine Reed said, quote, I can't really say, I don't know. Wow, Tom Jim Sula appreciates the hustle. I can't really say I don't know. I would not say that. I wouldn't say it either. Justine, is that your Twitter feed? I would not say that. I wouldn't say it either. I would not say that. I wouldn't say it either. I wouldn't. She was asked point blank. I wouldn't say it either. Is that that your feed? And she said, "I can't really say. I I don't know." You can't really say you don't know. That's an all timer. You don't know and you can't say if a social media account belongs to you. Either it does or it doesn't. Either you tweeted those things or you didn't. And since you didn't flat out deny it, you pretty much did, right? Not a good look for the fam. Not a good look for a family that already has enough bad looks. But again, the reads clearly do not give a damn about bad looks. And honestly, what goes on with his family really is not any of our business. I don't care about that. So now you're going to hear this today and for the rest of time, that we keep getting rolled up in Ryder Cup play because the European players simply want it more than we do and that their players are a hell of a lot tougher mentally than our players are. And to that I respond, yes and yes They do want it more than we do. They are tougher than we are. And it's a problem. And just to say that they want it more than us is weak. It's a lame crutch. It's an out. It's an out that I'm not giving you. It's a problem and an issue that needs fixing. Why do they want it more than we do? Because here's the thing. If we're just going to write this thing off as them wanting it more, them caring more, then why even bother going over there to play? If they want it more and they care more, why are any of us wasting our time? Just run this thing back when it's on U.S. soil because we never show up for the ones that they host anyway. And I got to be honest, I'm pretty sick and tired of jacking with my weekend sleep when I don't get nearly enough as it is every four years to watch a squad that does not care as much or want it as badly as the other guys do. If they really don't want it, like we always hear when this happens, then I don't want it either. If they don't care, why the hell should I? The Ryder Cup could not have gone any worse, but could not have gone any more predictably. Tiger and Phil sunk that squad, and the rest of the team followed them into that shallow grave. Bad weekend for the Americans. But just know this. If they don't give a damn, don't expect me to. If they don't give a damn, don't expect any of us to. If you don't want it as much as they want it, why are we even playing it? Dennis Dodd is my guest. Dennis, great to have you back. How are you? Dim?
1: I am great. The, uh, the flung poo drop will never get old. I'm still
0: laughing. Good. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Love hearing you say that. All right. Why don't we start first with Ohio State and Penn State. Dennis, what did you think as the fourth quarter of that game was unfolding?
1: Well, how about with eight minutes left and Penn State leads by 12 in front of one of the most loudest atmospheres in college football, the whiteout at night, uh, Beaver Stadium, and they blow the lead. Not only that, to play call at the end, Jim, on fourth and five is something that I think will haunt Penn State, if not for this year, for years, because, because they lost that game and did not put the, Fall into the hands of Trace McSorley. They've got the hope that Ohio State loses two twice in the conference, and they went out to have a chance, even at the division. Uh, it's, it's inexplicable, that play call at the end.
0: Alright, so that's a strong statement right there, that not only is the play call inexplicable, but that could come back to haunt them for a long, long time, maybe even years. So, Dennis, if you're James Franklin, how do you go about trying to make sure that it does not derail the rest of this season? What do you tell your team?
1: He's one of the best coaches in the country. And I, I think he already kind of owned up to it and fell on the grenade and, and took blame and everything else. So that that's done with. Trace McSorley is, I compare him to like a, a Johnny Manziel type, and I, I mean in play only, that even he doesn't know what he's going to do sometimes when plays start. And that, that's what I think makes him so great, um, a Heisman candidate. He had one of the best games of his career Saturday, almost 400 yards in total offense. So you got to ride them. They they've got everything they had last year. To me, I mean that the defensive line for long stretches of that game dominated Ohio State's offensive line. Miles Sanders is is pre, a pretty good impersonation of Saquon Barkley. Juwan Johnson is an elite receiver. I think you just got to keep playing and, and hope. And and it's not in their hands anymore. They don't control it. I think they're a top ten team still. So they just have to play on.
0: Dennis Daw, National College Football Writer for CBSSports.com, is my guest. So what about Ohio State? What does the road look like for them the rest of the way?
1: It looks pretty good. Uh, obviously, they've got Michigan, and I think they're better than Michigan. They're still going to have to play Michigan State inside that tough Big, uh, big Ten East division. But I, I think it was a real show of, what do you, I guess, intestinal fortitude Saturday. Like I said, that offensive line was being, being dominated. Dwayne Haskins. Haskins wasn't playing well. Uh, they were getting to him, and they just they just persisted, Jim. Dwayne Haskins is a kid. I, I did a story last week. There are people that follow the team that, that think he's like the best guy ever to spin the ball back there as a quarterback. I mean, he, he's a pro prospect. He's going to be a one-and-done. He's 30 years, three years out of high school. Um, so as much bad publicity as Urban Meyer has brought to the program, it's about the kids. And they're, they're, they're fantastic. They're clearly the best team in, in the Big Ten and, and probably the second-best team in the country right
0: now. We're talking to Dennis Dodd. I'll get to the best team in the country in a minute. But I want to ask you about the other primetime matchup on Saturday, Stanford at Notre Dame. I did have Brian Kelly on the show last week, and we talked about his decision, Dennis, to go with Ian Book at quarterback before the Wake Forest game. How different is Notre Dame's offense with Book at quarterback?
1: Totally. I was at the, the opener against Michigan, and Brandon Wimbush was like, oh, okay, he's become a better passer. He has 12 out of 22 for 170, and they ran him 19 times for 59 yards against a pretty good defense. But Ian Book, Jim, didn't even play in the first two games. What is Brian Kelly missing? And I guess it's not worth talking about anymore because he's going to be the starter, even though Brian Kelly won't admit it. But this guy's a great thrower. He had four touchdown passes against Stanford. His presence literally makes them a playoff, I guess, conversation piece to a playoff contender. And they get Dexter Williams back, who's their best back, with uh, Jafar Armstrong out with the injury, with the knee infection. And that's all they needed because the defense was a given. The defense can play with anybody in the country. But if they have balance on offense with Ian Brooks flinging around like he does, look, it's in their hands. They go undefeated, they're in. It's going to be like 2012.
0: I think they look playoff good. I think they look great. Yep. What about Clemson? Now, they dealt with the story of Trevor Lawrence, named starting quarterback and Kelly Bryan, announcing that he would transfer. Then Lawrence gets knocked out of the game, Dennis, which is exactly the nightmare scenario yep. that you had predicted as a possibility. Listen, good news is they didn't quit. They found a way to win. But having said that, how big of a concern is the quarterback position right now for Clemson?
1: I think it's huge, unless we get some definition. Until we get definition... On Trevor Lawrence's injury situation, I don't think they're a playoff team because I think Dabo said yesterday it's, quote, unquote, up in the air about his availability for Wake Forest. You know, okay, so that's one week. What about the next week? Because you're not going to win with a former scout team quarterback. Great job by Chase Bryce. He he went three for five for 51 yards in the the fourth quarter when the game was on the line. That was great. Three times He ran three times for 25 yards. But I think this is the long play for Dabo. He knew exactly what he was doing when he made this a battle between Kelly Bryant and, and Trevor Lawrence. This is the long play. If the worst-case scenario, which is now uh, Kelly Bryant leaves, you've still got Trevor Lawrence for three years trying to slay the Giants, and that's Alabama. That's their competition right now. They're not going to win a national championship again until they beat Alabama again. I think we know that. So it was better put Trevor Lawrence in there. He earned it. Um, as a starter and maybe lose Kelly Bryant, but have him for three years firing Rockets at Alabama and everybody else than and having Kelly Bryant there. So he knew what he was getting into.
0: We're talking to Dennis Dodd for a few more moments. Alright, so in terms of Alabama, Dennis... They're winning their games by an average of nearly six touchdowns every Saturday. It would appear that it is Alabama and everybody else. But let me put it to you another way: When you look at what Tua is doing at quarterback, how does this Alabama team compare to the best Nick Saban teams?
1: I think it's thought, yeah. That conversation has surfaced that this is the best Nick Saban team. It's go, It's trending towards one of the best in Alabama history if they keep winning like they did. And I'll give you one stat which proves that. Through five game, games, Jim, they scored 271 points. That's more than 67 Alabama teams p- scored in the entire season. Mm. So that's pretty good. I think the biggest story with Alabama is that under the radar, they've become a passing team. they pe- become a really good passing team. That doesn't I mean they're throwing it 50 times a game. It, it means they're not trying to establish the run first. They've got a very deep backfield where no one's probably going to get 100 yards per game. That's okay. But with Tua and now with Jalen Hurts, they have the deepest quarterback room in the country. Um, with Mike Oxley, the offensive coordinator, a guy who's come out of nowhere from his time at New Mexico, um, his offensive coordinator, they're doing great things. And, and Tua's just an elite talent. I mean, he's, he's the number one player in the country probably right now. And I don't see anybody slowing them down. Now, November 3rd at LSU with that defense, that's going to be a problem. But I still think they've got enough players to make plays. I remember a couple of years ago, Jalen Hurts went in there and they won 10 to nothing. Could be one of
0: those deals. All right, so last thought, let me ask you about one more elite talent. Kyler Murray threw for 432 yards, six touchdowns, ran for 45 yards, and another TD in that win over Baylor. You raised the question that not long ago would have seemed just crazy, Dennis, but is there an argument that Murray might be as good or even better than Baker Mayfield?
1: Yeah, I think, I, I think that's a discussion right now. And I, you know, I think that is a discussion to be had. I, he's, he's a little bit of a different, different player. He's not going to be as accurate as Baker Mayfield, but his athleticism is better. And he seems to make really good decisions, whether running or being in the pocket or throwing on the run. He doesn't, doesn't turn it over much. The concern with Oklahoma, Jim, ultimately, is if they get to the goal they want to go to, go to the playoff again, is that defense. They gave up 33 points to Baylor. 91st in the country in defense we saw how they lost the Georgia game I mean I'm just cutting to the chase for early you know early January or December this defense has to get better um, and if it doesn't it's going to end disappointingly like it did last year
0: he is a national college football writer for Sports.com, a very good friend of the program Dennis Dodd breaking down another busy weekend of college football Dennis great job good to have you back thanks so much all right thanks so much Jim so I got a quick question. Who had a worse weekend? The U.S. Ryder Cup team or the Seattle Seahawks? On the surface, it would seem like a no-brainer. The Americans, the alleged greatest team ever assembled, got their asses kicked in France. And the Seahawks beat the Cardinals in the desert. So that would seem like an easy question. It would seem like a no-brainer. But here's where it changes. Because deep down... Even though they look better on paper, deep down, you had to know the Americans were going to get worked in Europe, because that's always what happens. And if you thought otherwise, you're lying to yourself. You should have seen this coming on Friday morning, because after they jumped out to that 3-1 lead, in the first session, they promptly puked all over themselves. The Americans always lose over there, just like Tiger Woods and Phil Mickelson always no-show once they get there. And how fitting was it that it ended with Hefty finding the water and conceding the match and the cup? Most predictable thing ever. There's no way that could have gone any other way than with Hefty doing what he did. However... What happened with the Seahawks was not the most predictable thing ever because while they won that game, they lost Earl Thomas, most likely for the season with a broken leg in the third quarter. Now, the truth is they lost Earl Thomas a long time ago. They lost him when contract talks went nowhere. That's when they lost Earl Thomas. It only became official yesterday. And what really, really became official was how Thomas really feels about that team. Because as he was being carted off the field, he pretty much apparently gave the middle finger to the Seahawks' sideline. Now, when I talked to former NFLer Steve Smith earlier today, he's now a member of the NFL Network, and he also appears on Inside the NFL on Showtime. When I said to Steve Smith that Earl Thomas apparently lobbed on the bird, he quickly corrected me.
3: Well, let me ask you, when has the last time you've seen a franchise... High paid Pro Bowl player get injured. They have to put an air cast on his leg. Who stayed on the sideline though? See, the the headline said he's flipping off the sideline. When has a player been injured and you have not seen the head coach come out on the field and look to see how his player is doing? The Arizona Cardinals patted him on the back. Larry Fitzgerald came off the sideline. Everybody came on the si- off the sideline except an important person for the Seattle Seahawks, Pete Carroll. He wasn't flipping off the sideline. He was flipping a bird to Pete Carroll. And hence why Pete Carroll, right after the game is over, in the wind, he says, we're putting him on IR. It's a severe injury. When has broken legs been that severe where you don't even, you have a prognosis of he is immediately no longer available for the remainder of the season? So that just lets you know the dysfunction of that organization.
0: Right, so that's my key takeaway here. The dysfunction of that organization. No sooner than Steve Smith said that, a number of you pointed out, hey, look, man, the coach did come on the field. Pete Carroll did come on the field. Fair enough. Fair enough. However, however, Earl Thomas did flip off that sideline. And I guarantee he was not flipping off his teammates. We know that. That was directed at the head coach. That was directed at the organization. Have you ever seen an injured player flip off his own coaching staff and front office coming off the field? I haven't. That was definitely a first. Thomas was not available to the media after that game, so he did not explain the gesture. But unless I have no idea, unless I'm really, really wrong, I don't need an explanation. What that was was a literal, a literal bleep you to the Seahawks and not the players but to the organization the coach and the organization so Earl Thomas holds out he then comes in he plays he plays well and then he gets hurt Bobby Wagner said afterwards quote I think that's the crazy part of our business if he doesn't come in then he's not a team player if he does come and he gets hurt then it's He shouldn't have come. So it's a position that we get put in often, and it's an unfortunate situation. Right. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Because as Earl Thomas and Le'Veon Bell and pretty much every NFL player will tell you, there are two things guaranteed in the NFL. Two things guaranteed in the NFL. Injuries and non-guaranteed contracts. And he's got the former. And it sucks. And he's pissed. And I get it. So what about Pete Carroll, the guy he flipped off? What about Pete Carroll? Couldn't wait to find out what Pete had to say. And and remember, Pete Carroll, right? They love this guy. It was not that long ago that the Seahawks had the best culture in the NFL. I am dying to know what Pete Carroll thought about his star player flipping him off from a cart with an air cast as as he was being wheeled out of the stadium. I, yeah, I don't
3: know somebody said something I don't know anything about that. I don't know. It's a big stadium, you know could been, I don't know where it was aimed at. Earl was uh, extraordinarily poised on the field for for the, to what just occurred to to be so clear and so uh, you know resolved to, to, to what he he knew what happened and uh, uh, but he was so poised and, and you know and given back to the players and all of us and and uh, so I don't
0: know what happened after that. This guy's talking on his backside. That's incredible. It's like <coughs> he was, was, was poised on the field. <speaks forward> it's a big stadium. <fighters> what the hell are you talking about, Pete? Your star player is flipping you off, flipping off the sideline, but flipping you off. And you're going on about the size of the stadium, about how he showed tremendous poise on the field considering what was going on, and about giving back to the players. The hell is the matter with you, Pete? No, serious, Peter. What the hell are you talking about? E- even for you, bumping your gums in a rapid fashion, chewing your t- your gum ferociously, and making no sense. That le- that literally made no sense. Even for Pete, that made no sense at all.
3: Uh, yeah, I don't, know, I I don't, know, I don't to You know, I know I to be so clear and so, uh, you know, to he, what and, uh, uh, he was so poised, uh, you know, giving back to the players and all this. And uh, so I don't
0: have that. It's like the more controversial the topic, the faster he talks, the less, the less sense he makes. Hey, listen, listen, don't get it twisted. Pete Carroll, look at me. Pete Carroll is a very good coach. Pete Carroll, arguably, is one of the best coaches. You don't have that kind of success that he has had in turning around USC and Seattle without being damn good at your job. Pete Carroll is a very good coach. But that is a very whack answer even for a guy as weird as Peter. And further illustration of just how weird everything has gotten with the Seahawks. A few years back, they were the gold standard, not just in terms of talent, but in terms of how that team worked with talent. Now you've got a star player, one of the best they've ever had, one of the best to ever do it, flipping them off as he rides off on an injury card. So not only do they not have one of their best players, They no longer have that chip as trade bait. Things have fallen so far, so far for this team. The Seahawks still have some guys from those teams, but this Seahawks team is not like those teams. This team is just weird. It's weird, it's uncomfortable, and it's about as weird and awkward as Seabass wearing Seahawks gear. I still can't get my head wrapped around that one. But know this, even with a win, yesterday was the final nail in that coffin. The Legion of Boom is dead. And it happened on the same field where Richard Sherman and Cam Chancellor were injured last season. Same field where Russell Wilson threw an interception in the Super Bowl a few years earlier. You know, the pick that took the Seahawks from a dynasty to a disaster. I have never seen a single play, one single play, haunt a team the way that play has haunted this team. That field is now a house of horrors for the Seahawks. Injuries to Sherman, Chancellor, and Thomas. The worst play call in Super Bowl history. And now Thomas flipping the ultimate player as coach, the ultimate statement on the way off the field. Thomas didn't want to be there. Seattle didn't want to trade him, and now neither one is going to get what they want. Tom Verducci is my guest. Tom, good morning. How are you? I'm
2: um, great. Great time of year, Jim. Thanks for having me. The
0: best time of year, Tom. Great to have you back. The postseason begins tomorrow, but you have the first to two game. 163 is underway right now. So, Tom, if you're a manager in these games and you know that if you lose, you still have to play tomorrow, how do you go about approaching the game today?
2: Yeah, it's different. It's not all hands on deck. It's not win or go home, obviously. So you have to manage aggressively, but not at the cost of the next game if you happen to lose. So you have to manage this game with an eye on the next game. In other words, Game sevens of a uh, LCS or World Series, be prepared to see anybody at a bullpen, including starting pitchers. Not really the case today. So uh, it's a manager's game, though. These games still are a manager's game, especially the way bullpens are used today. Uh, but especially tricky today because you have to have something left in the tank if you happen to lose today.
0: And if we have the time, I want to talk to you about the bullpens and how they are used, but let me ask you about the Dodgers. They had been hot in September. They hit a bit of a lull, which coincided with the Rockies getting red hot, but then L.A. bounced back. They got a sweep of the Giants when they had to have it. So how do the Dodgers look to you right now?
2: Strong. I mean, their game is about just – basically pounding opponents with the home run ball right They're a team built on slugging that's the way that they win they're a very deep team uh you'll see their left-handed hitters tonight play a big role against the right-hander herman marquez uh he's much more effective against righties than lefties but what i like about the dodgers is they can match up both on the mound and at the plate uh whatever they need in terms of right-handed or left-handed so tonight the lefties will be a key i still think Let's face it, we all know Justin Turner, right? He's the heart and soul of that team. I mean, he's an impact hitter. He's a clubhouse leader. He's a baseball savant, if you will, in terms of hitting. But uh, I look at guys like Muncy and Peterson tonight as the ones who have to do the damage against the Rockies.
0: Tom Verducci joining us. All right, what about Milwaukee, Tom? At the start of the year, they were a 55-1 to long shot to win the World Series. How do you explain the fact that they are where they are right now? Well,
2: Kristen Yelich has got all Carl Yastrzemski on baseball this year. <laughs> right. You know, that unbelievable September where he slugged over 800, really is carrying this team, getting hot at the right time, undefeated in the last week. But I also like the fact that they've got the kind of modern bullpen that wins in today's game. They have a bunch of guys. I think they have five guys who strike out more than 10 per nine innings. Hmm. So Craig Council, I know he's got, let's say, average, maybe slightly better than average starting pitching. And back in the day, you would say, well, there's no way that could be a playoff team. But not in today's game. Today, when you have so many relief pitchers and guys who peep the ball out of play, you can win that way. Remember, it was only like, what, three years ago, where the Royals won the World Series, and we get all excited about the three guys at the end of the Royals' bullpen, right? Uh, Holland, Herrera, Davis. Now the Brewers got like six of those guys. That's how much the game has changed, and they're playing that game as well as anybody. Um, because Council is very aggressive with the way he uses those guys. When you have so many options, you can be aggressive.
0: Right, and so why would you not take advantage of that, and why would you not try to bullpen the other guy? So when you look at the combination of dominant bullpens like you lay out, and then you have all the advanced stats that managers have access to, how much has the challenge of being a major league hitter changed?
2: Oh, man, just think about everything you have to prepare for for a game. Yes, there's a ton of information, but you also have to be prepared to hit against about – eight or nine different guys that you might see in the course of a game. It's rare you get consecutive at-bats against the same pitcher, you know, maybe you get your first two against the starter. After that, you know, you're seeing guys throwing upper 90s, wipeout sliders. Just the power in the game right now is just – it's crazy how much it's changed in the last five or six years. So there's a reason now the major league batting average is the lowest it's ever been in the 47 years since we've had a DH. And I know people will complain that guys swinging up and, uh, you know, trying to lift the ball in the air and striking out too much. But you have to start with what's coming at them from the pitcher's mound. I don't think hitting's ever been more difficult than it is today. And you're going to see that throughout the postseason. You know, the Indians, the Astros, they're a little bit different. They're a little older school. They want to beat you with their starting pitchers. But otherwise, you're seeing, you're going to see a parade of relief pitchers I think last year was, what, like 46%, 47% of the innings were picked up by relievers. We may actually push 50% this year.
0: Hmm. Right now, Tom, Tom Radici, my guest. Right now, Tom, they're going to the sixth inning, and the Cubs and Brewers are tied at one apiece. And you literally wrote the book on the Cubs, the book titled The Cubs Way. When you look at this year's team and you compare it with the 2016 team, what do you see? I see a
2: flawed team right now. I see a team that, you know, based on some of the things that they, they were in their blueprint when the year started, Brandon Morrow closing, you uh, Darvish in the rotation, Tyler Chatwood in the rotation, none of those things are in play. And you see what's happened to them. They lost a five-game lead in September, partly because Milwaukee got red hot, but also because Morrow couldn't make it back from his injury. Pedro Strope gets hurt in a game where Joe Madden had him taken at bat with the bases loaded rather than pinch hit for him. Um, and recently, C.J. Edwards, who's really been a key for them in the last couple of years, is really not usable in key spots because he's lost his stuff and his confidence. So, to me, there's definitely flaws in this team when it comes to their pitching, and especially how to win a game late. I mean, you mentioned it, 1-1 game right now. I have no idea, I'm not sure Joe Madden has any idea, how he's going to finish a game. There's not a formula now for the Cubs, at least a preferred formula, and how they get the last nine to 12 outs of a game.
0: Tom, what about finishing the season? As an example, when they won the World Series in 2016, they snapped that streak and they ended the course. Of course, if they don't win another World Series with this era of players, is that going to be a disappointment or is just getting that one enough?
2: Well, listen, I don't want to say that's enough. like You can just rest on it, but it'll never be another one like that, of course, when you wait that long to win one. But I do think because they were so young when they won a couple of years ago that the expectation was that there's at least another one in the bank. So to me it's analogous, Jim, to 1986 when the Mets won. You look at the ages of the team, of the players, the key players for the Mets when they won, they are pretty much all just entering their prime, you know, mid to late 20s. That was similar to what the Cubs were a couple of years ago. And, of course, the Mets – didn't win another one. They didn't even get back to another World Series. So you never know what can happen. So I think, yeah, this is a window that they should extend with at least another pennant. But, uh, you know, especially getting through a couple of rounds now, the postseason is a lot harder.
0: Uh, There's no guarantees of that. Tom Verducci, MLB Network and Fox Sports analyst, also a senior writer for SI. Tom, before you go, let me ask you about the Red Sox. They, they finish up a 108-win season. What, in your mind, would be their biggest concern as they head into the postseason?
2: Well, two things for me, and it should be their strengths. One is Chris Sale. You know, he was not throwing anywhere near the velocity he should be throwing in the last uh, start that he had in the regular season. Of course, he missed a lot of time in September to rest the shoulder, is he the same uh, Chris Sale? I, I don't know. I don't think the Red Sox know that answer. And then in Game Two, it's David Price. You know, you're talking about a guy who started nine postseason games, and he's 0 and 8 with a 5 something ERA in those starts. The minute he takes the ball in Fenway Park in Game Two, I think there's as much pressure on him as anybody in baseball in the postseason. And I say that because the game's at home. You know, he knows he doesn't have a lot in the bank of goodwill with Red Sox fans. He said it himself how important it is to come through in the postseason, not just the regular season. So, to me, I think those two games, listen, when you win 108, Jim, there's always pressure in a five-game series to make sure you win those first two games at home. Because you lose, especially the first game, the pressure really ratchets it up. You're supposed to win the series, and in a five-game series, you don't have a lot of room to recover. So... I think there's going to be some nervous feelings just starting out for a Red Sox team that's been so good all year long. Um, On paper, they should be fine starting those two guys. But I'd be a little bit concerned about the way Sale is throwing and about Price's postseason resume.
0: Tom Berducci joining us. It's going to be fascinating, those first two games. Tom, quickly, I appreciate your time, but how about one more thought? If you take a step away from the postseason for a moment, yesterday may have been Bryce Harper's final game in a Nationals jersey. Do you think that Washington made a mistake in not dealing him before the deadline?
2: I do. I said that at the time. I I thought they were overrating their team. The hardest thing to do, especially now with a second wild card, is to look yourself in the mirror as a team, as a general manager, and say, we're not good enough to make the postseason. You know, let's cash in this chip and see if we can get to make sure we're back there next year. Uh, they hung on essentially for another week and a half, Jim, because then they started, they did start shedding some parts there in terms of Murphy and a couple of their relief pitchers. I thought they have been a 500 team throughout the season. I didn't like the culture there. I didn't see things changing. They decided to kind of stick it out as long as they could. I think they held on to it too long. They also think, Jim, that helps them re-sign him. I'm not sure I believe that because you can book it right now. The team that signs Bryce Harper is going to be the team that offers him the most money, period. And it's going to be a lot of money. So I don't think trading him would have changed that scenario. I agree
0: with you, period. Whoever offers him the most money is going to get him. The MLB postseason begins tomorrow, and Tom Verducci is going to be a part of MLB Network and Fox Sports' postseason coverage. And remember, you can read Tom's work for SI throughout the postseason. Tom, great to have you on. Thank you so much. Very well done, as always.
2: Hey, man, I always enjoy it. Thanks for having me. Good night now!
3: How to show up with Coca-Cola energy. You're tired and you're thinking of canceling on your friends.